Uh, welcome to those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. As you know, we are in uh, an unprecedented series, a topical series looking at critical theory. We've done that for the last two Sundays. We're doing it again today, looking specifically at critical race theory. And then we will end next Sunday, to the great relief of many of you. We will end next Sunday uh, as we talk practically about how we can engage with those who differ from us, um, you know, about these kinds of issues. Our next uh, scripture, the next book of uh, the Bible that we're going to look at is the book of Ephesians. Uh, that's where we're going. Uh, if you haven't gotten a handout, it, there are handouts available. Randy is kind enough to go around and distribute those. Please raise your hand or, or look at him in one way or another. He will get those to you. It's essentially an outline of today's message coupled with certain significant um, quotes in the back. So it might be helpful to you. Let's pray together. Our God, there is no one like you. We praise you as the sustainer of all things, uh, the one who does all things well. We confess, Father, that you are the God who heals broken relationships. You are the God who has healed our broken relationship to you through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that through the death and resurrection of our Lord, all of our guilt and trespasses that separated us from you have been taken away. We have peace with you, Lord. We are reconciled to you. Uh, we pray also that if there are divisions in our midst at CBC, Lord, at our church, we pray that your spirit and the gospel would heal those divisions. Help us to remember how much we have been forgiven and be quick to forgive one another. Uh, even in our personal lives, Lord, if there are strained marriages, strained relationships between family members, uh, parents and children, we pray that you, the great restorer of relationships, would restore them, Lord, for the glory of your name and our good. We ask humbly, Father, that... Uh, what is said today would, be, would both instruct and edify. Uh, we pray that your name would be lifted up, your truth would be honored as we reflect on the contemporary scene from a biblical standpoint. Bless this time, we pray. Amen. So, last two messages have looked broadly at critical theory. Uh, much of what has been said about critical theory applies to critical race theory. Uh, but critical race theory, as the name suggests, uh, takes how theory understands society and looks from that standpoint at the issue of race specifically. Uh, so we're going to look at how critical race theory understands how racism and race operates in society. Let me make a few qualifications here at the beginning. Uh, this is not a comprehensive or exhaustive statement on race relations uh, in American history or in the present. That's far too ambitious a thing. Uh, and well beyond my competence to do. Uh, our aim is more modest this morning. We are going to look specifically at how critical race theory understands racism and race and show how it's unbiblical and unhelpful. Instead of making the problem of race and racism better, arguably it makes it worse. And so that is specifically what we will be doing. Critical race theory is an unhelpful and unbiblical way to think about racism in society. Uh, I want to be very clear that you can be both against racism and against critical theory. This is not well understood. Sometimes people think that to be against racism today, you have to embrace critical race theory. That's just not the case. You can agree, as we should, because we're Christians and we believe the Bible, that racism is an, is an evil in the sight of God. Uh, treating people as something less than his image bearer because of physical differences is wicked. And we, so we say that that's true, but we also acknowledge critical race theory is an unhelpful approach to this problem. Also, in critiquing critical race theory, uh, we're not denying that racism continues to exist in society. Neither are we saying that there hasn't been significant racism in the past. 
Again, we are simply critiquing one way of thinking about racism, critical race theory, that is unbiblical and unhelpful. So I want us to see four things this morning. Uh, number one, we're going to look at how Scripture teaches us to think about race. So race in Scripture. Number two, uh, we're going to look at three tenets or principles of critical race theory. Uh, the first is that racism is everywhere. It's embedded in the fundamental structures of society. It's there in all social relationships. That's tenet number one. Principle two, race is an essential component of a person's identity. Race is an essential component of a person's identity. And then tenet three is white privilege means all white people are automatically racist. White privilege means regardless of how well-intentioned you are, because of white privilege, all white people are automatically racist. So we will consider these dimensions of critical race theory and offer a biblical commentary and evaluation along the way. Let's start with the idea of race. And uh, let me begin by saying that uh, I largely agree with critical race theory on this point, and so should you. Uh, critical theory says that race is a social construct. It says that we wrongly take physical differences that exist hum among human beings and elevate them and say that because of these physical differences, there are essential and radical differences between different people groups. Well, that's wrong. And critical race theory rightly points out that it's wrong, and Scripture teaches us that it's wrong. Uh, there aren't essential and radical differences among human beings, such that uh, there are differences at the level of being. Certain be human beings are qualitatively different than other human beings. According to Scripture, we are all descendants of Adam. Acts 17, Paul speaks to the Athenians, and he says that all the nations of the earth have come from one man. We are all God's image bearers. Uh, we are all truly human, and we all reflect God. Uh, of course, there are physical differences among human beings. Some groups are taller, some are shorter, some are darker skinned, some are lighter skinned. But these physical differences shouldn't be interpreted to imply that there are essential and radical differences between human beings. We are all the same, having the same human nature uh, bearing the image of God. Uh, here's an analogy that may be helpful to you. Uh, when I was growing up in our household around Easter time, uh, we would color eggs. Uh, we'd have red eggs and brown eggs and blue eggs. But what was important about the eggs the thing that they shared in common was their egghood, their eggness. Their eggness was more funda fundamental than their redness or blueness or brownness. Now, that's the biblical perspective on race. Our humanity, what we have in common, is more fundamental and important than what separates us. And so it is wrong to view other people groups as essentially different from us, and that opens the door to look down on them as perhaps less human, less made in the image of God. This is all contrary to Scripture. Owen Strand, I think, well sums up the biblical view when he says, as humans, we are not fundamentally different, but fundamentally alike. We are one human race, not many different races. The very conception of race, in fact, is man-made. There's the common ground with critical race theory. Man-made. While it is true that there are certain differences between people groups, we have no biblical grounds for splicing humanity up into many races. Although Darwinian evolution didn't create the category of race, arguably, in the 19th century, it, it provided a, a biological basis for distinguishing between people in this way, but it's a profoundly unbiblical view. We're descended from Adam, 
we have far more in common than what separates us. The similarities are essential, the differences are superficial. Uh, so from a Christian standpoint, it is wrong to view people as fundamentally different from ourselves and to view them as inferior because of different superficial differences that exist. That is racism. It is a sin against God because we take his image bearers and say that they are something less than his image bearer. Uh, and racism is therefore a great sin against God. And as Christians, we should oppose it. So we want to be clear about that. That's the broadly speaking biblical view of race. Okay, first tenet, first principle of CRT Racism is everywhere. It's embedded in all social life. A couple of quotes where you can see this. UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs notes, CRT recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of American society. The individual racist need not exist to note that institutional racism is pervasive in the dominant culture. Note that. You can have a racist society without racists. Uh, no one has to be intentionally racist for the structures to be racist and oppressive. It's systemic. It's everywhere. Uh, Richard Delgado observes racism is normal. The usual way society does business, the common everyday experience of most people of color in this country. Robin D'Angelo, is everyone really equal, observes anti-racist education recognizes racism as embedded in all aspects of society and the socialization process. It's everywhere. Owen Strand, CRT teaches that also societal life is structured along racial power dynamics. So CRT is not interested simply in clear and well-defined instances of racism in law or attitude. It's interested in all sorts of ubiquitous, non-obvious forms of racism that perhaps don't exist. Let me give you some examples to flesh this out. I went to Robin D'Angelo's website recently, and I followed a link uh, to a particular document called White Supremacy Culture. This document was taken from a workbook called Dismantling Racism. Uh, it's a workbook for social change. And in this workbook, it says that organizations have certain practices and methodologies that reinforce white supremacy and hold uh, black people down. And it tries to give organizations tips for how to fix it. Uh, this document says, this is a list of characteristics of white supremacy culture which show up in our organizations. They are damaging because they promote white supremacy thinking. So what are some of these characteristics that reinforce white supremacy? They list perfectionism, sense of urgency, defensiveness, quantity over quality, worship of the written word. This is an example of that idea, they note. If it's not in a memo, it doesn't exist, that attitude. It's not, if it's not written down, uh, then it doesn't exist. That's a white way of thinking, apparently, uh, that reinforces white uh, supremacy. But also individualism, objectivity. Uh, these values, these practices, these procedures, these attitudes are viewed as reinforcing white privilege. Uh, I, I use these examples just to show you that when they say that it's everywhere, it's everywhere. Uh, even what we might think of are relatively neutral, common sense, best practices for getting work done, even such practices are uh, infused with a, with a race, racist tinge or a racist quality. They reinforce white privilege and hold black people down. Another example, insisting on white ways of knowing, like the scientific method and reason, is viewed as reinforcing white privilege. Uh, apparently, you know, uh, 
people of color, black people favor narrative and storytelling as ways of advancing their knowledge. So even as insisting too strongly on evidence and reason can be a form of racism. Uh, Derek Bell, who is widely viewed as the founder of critical race theories, the first African-American professor at Harvard Law School, tenured professor at Harvard Law School, developed what he calls the interest convergence thesis. And the interest convergence thesis states that white people will give black people rights only when it is in their interest to do so. So that even when society appears to make progress on the race front, it actually isn't. The racism is simply becoming more complicated. He says in his book, And We Are Not Saved, progress in American race relations is largely a mirage, obscuring the fact that whites continue, consciously or unconsciously, to do all in their power to ensure their dominion and maintain their control. This is remarkable. It was written something like 1970, after uh, the Jim Crow laws had been repudiated. Jim Crow laws uh, were operative in the South. They mandated certain segregation between blacks and whites. And starting in 1954, and subsequently, these laws were slowly repealed. And there you have a clear-cut, definable instance of social progress in the issue of race relations and racism. It's clearly and definably being addressed in law. How does Bell see this? Well, this is just giving way to more complicated forms of racism. Even when there's clear-cut progress, actually, it isn't really progress. Uh, racism has just become harder to define. And you get the impression that regardless of what objective and clear pro uh, progress society makes when it comes to racism, CRT will find racism everywhere and deny that progress has been made. CRT tries to deal with the problem of racism by, by seeing it everywhere, uh, seeing it arguably where it doesn't exist, exaggerating and talking about nothing else. The result, ironically, is that it's likely to make racial tensions worse rather than better by seeing racism everywhere. Another example of this, another uh, instance of viewing racism everywhere, is that CRT in interprets discrepancies between white, uh, the white community and the black community as the result always and inescapably of systemic racism. So if there are different outcomes for the white community and black community, there is only one explanation, and that's racism. Other factors are off the table. Uh, we can't consider, for instance, problematic patterns of behavior within the black community. That can even be a, form, a subtle form of racism. There's only one and arguably simplistic explanation that is permitted by CRT, which is racism. However, as Vody Bauckham, who is himself a, a black pastor, a theologian, uh, he notes that the black pulpit doesn't share this view of things. Black pastors encourage the members of their congregation to take responsibility and address problematic patterns of behavior that lead to problems in the community. So Bauckham writes in his book, uh, Fault Lines, white liberals may chafe at the idea of black responsibility, but black pastors do not. They and their members know that regardless of what is going on outside the black community, culture matters. Black family matters, education matters, decision and choices matter, and above all, God's word matters. Uh, where you have a community where there is rampant fatherlessness, 70% fatherlessness, no community on earth is able to flourish. And so it is legitimate to look at other explanations for 
disparities between, say, black and white communities than simply racism. But CRT, in principle, is against alternative explanation. There is only one possible explanation, and that's racism. There's one black leader uh, who gave a speech in 2008 on Father's Day in his church, and he made the following observations. He said, we know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves, and the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. He goes on, yes, we need more cops on the streets. Yes, we need fewer guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Yes, we need more jobs and more job training and more opportunity in our communities. But we also need families to raise our children. We need fathers to realize that responsibility does not end at conception. We need them to realize that what makes you a man, he goes on, it's not just having children, but raising them. He says, it's up to us to tell our sons, those songs on the radio may glorify violence, but in my house we give glory to achievement, self-respect, and hard work. And the speaker was former President Barack Obama. This is a speech given in 2008, and I cite it because it suggests that many of the problems faced by the black community are grounded in harmful patterns of behavior that need to be addressed. Uh, th there needs to be seriousness on the part of black fathers, for instance, in raising children. Now, you, again, this is very problematic from the standpoint of CRT, but it is something that you see from the black community. CRT is against these kinds of alternative, complementary explanations. Everything, as I say, is racism. Uh, the result of this perpetual accusation of racism is that it creates a, a distorted picture of our society, causing us to view it as more racist than perhaps it actually is. For instance, Scott David Allen, in his book Why Social Justice Isn't Biblical Justice, cites this statistic. He says, in 2019, according to the Washington Post database of police shootings, in a nation of 330 million people, a total of 14 unarmed black Americans were fatally shot by police. And these were not innocent bystanders. Uh, most were attacking police officers at the time they were shot. Again, the loss of even one life, innocent life, is a very serious thing. But the point is, when you read a stat like that, people are surprised. Even people who don't buy into CRT, they're like, really, that's all? Again, I don't, we don't want to minimize the death of even one individual. But the point is, we have been so conditioned to think of society as fundamentally racist, of the uh, police officers and the judicial system as fundamentally racist, that we're a little bit surprised by the fact that it's 14. Indeed, Vody Bauckham in his book, Fault Lines, uh, refers to an interview uh, with a group of black men where they were given some of these statistics, and they were initially asked, like, how many people do you think die, or black men die in America? And it was like, one well, guy's like a thousand or something like that. And then he gave the statistics, and the, and the you know, that, that's simply, that's too difficult to believe. Well, why is that difficult to believe? Because CRT perpetually sees racism everywhere. Um, it exaggerates the racism that exists in society. Again, we're not saying it's not there, but it exaggerates the racism that exists in, this, in society and causes us to see society in a distorted way. Again, CRT tries to solve a real problem, namely racism, but it does, it does so in an unhelpful way that arguably makes racial tensions more severe. There are several spiritual problems that arise when we embrace this way of thinking. Uh, the first problem is that CRT teaches those who embrace it 
to maximize wrongdoing, to maximize faults, to keep a record of wrongs, and indeed to see wrongs everywhere, to harbor a perpetual sense of grievance and having been wronged. Here's how James Lindsay uh, puts it, who's not a Christian. He says, critical race theory's hallmark paranoid mindset, which assumes racism is everywhere, always just waiting to be found, is extremely unlikely to be helpful or healthy for those who adopt it. Always believing that one will be or is being discriminated against and trying to find out how is unlikely to improve the outcome of any situation. If we train young people to read insult, hostility, and prejudice into every interaction, they may increasingly see the world as hostile to them and fail to thrive in it. CRT encourages us to see wrongs and slights everywhere and inflate them as much as possible. And this is the exact opposite of what Scripture teaches us to do. Scripture, if I may put it simply, teaches us to minimize wrongs, to be quick to forgive those who wrong us as God in Christ has forgiven us the massive mountain of debt. When we look at all the guilt and shame and wrong that we've committed against a holy God, and we see how at the cross he has taken it all away, the characteristic posture towards other human beings should be one of gentleness and grace. Even when we correct, we do so from a place of empathy and understanding, knowing how good God has been with us. Proverbs 19.11, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. A mature person doesn't get hung up on every microaggression, every slight, every fault. He's able to look the other way and move on without counting wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 5, love is patient. It keeps no record of wrongs. We know how destructive it is when in a relationship somebody's keeping track, somebody's keeping score, especially marriage, and they don't let go of those wrongs. That relationship begins to fall apart pretty quickly. Relationships remain healthy and vibrant when we quickly forgive and move on and let things go. If we hold on to them, chaos, relational chaos ensues. Matthew 7, 3 and 4. Why do, you, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? This is Jesus speaking. He says, you, we need to start not by pointing the finger at other people, but by pointing the finger at ourselves. Jesus is saying, take responsibility. If your life is the way that it is, first and foremost, look at what you have done and take responsibility for the choices that you have made. See your own faults. Begin by being hard on yourself before seeing faults in anybody else. CRT reverses this. I'm a product of an unjust social system, and it's fundamentally your fault that I am the way that I am. Jesus is saying, look at yourself first. CRT encourages what Jerry Bridges called a critical spirit. Constantly finding fault with others, obsessing about uh, slights, real or imagined, uh, and, and constantly criticizing others. That's a spiritually deadly place to live. If you're like that with your spouse, your children, you're hard on them, you're constantly criticizing them, you're not giving them grace, understand that you're in a place of spiritual danger and not walking in line with the gospel. When you understand the grace and goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ought to produce a characteristic gentleness, not an accusatory and harsh spirit. If you ask your spouse or children uh, about whether or not there is grace, what would they say? I want to be clear, it's not just CRT 
that produces people like this. Our sin that dwells in our hearts can produce people like this. Another problem with CRT is that it lacks realism about just how much justice can be accomplished in this life. It tries to scrutinize thoughts and language to produce uh, racial justice at every level. And of course, as Christians, if we see injustice, we love Jesus and we want to fight against injustice. But we also recognize that until Jesus comes back, there's going to be darkness, there's going to be injustice, this world's going to be hard, and we see grace to be faithful in the midst of that, recognizing that it's going to be hard until Jesus comes back. Uh, Bradley Levinson, his book Beyond Critique, notes, the bottom line is that criticalists, it's a good word, criticalists are outraged at gross inequality and they want to alleviate or minimize human suffering and maximize well-being. Okay, so do we. Uh, they do not accept the necessity of suffering and they, they do not buy hard-headed or theological justifications for suffering. Okay, we've got to stop right there. They don't view suffering as I- inevitable and inescapable. That's utopian, idealistic Uh, thinking that doesn't have its feet firmly planted in reality. Uh, We seek, by God's grace, to challenge evil in the world, but we recognize until Jesus comes back, there will be tears, there will be sorrows, there there are going to be many wrongs that won't be addressed until we see Jesus come back in great glory at the end of the age. That's our hope for justice. We believe that there is a day coming when all wrongs will indeed be righted, but not by men, not by human theories, but by the Son of God when he returns from heaven in great glory. James chapter 5, verse 7 encourages oppressed Christians this way. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Yeah, you experience hardship and opposition in this world. Be patient. There is a day of relief and restoration coming. A day when every tear will be wiped away. And if you believe that that day is coming you can endure in a, even in a very flawed and dark and imperfect world. It's precisely because critical race theory lacks that vision of a final righting of all wrongs that it tries to bring heaven down to earth in the present and the result is only more human misery and suffering. We recognize that this world, until Jesus comes back, is going to be a, a dark place, a difficult place, that there will be suffering and we endure because of the hope of the gospel that we have. Jesus is coming back, and he'll put wrong every right. Second principle of critical race theory, moving on now, is that race is an essential aspect of a person's identity. Race is an essential aspect of a person's identity. And here we come to the idea of intersectionality. This idea was developed by Kimberly Crenshaw, a student of Derrick Bell's, also one of the founders of critical race theory. And it makes a pretty straightforward, non-controversial observation. A person can belong to multiple oppressed categories. So the idea is that there are layers of oppression. You can be a person and you're black, there's one layer of oppression. And then if you're a woman, there's another layer of oppression. And if you're a lesbian, there's a third layer of oppression. Uh, And the idea is that the more boxes you check, the more oppressed you are, the more intensely you feel society's oppression, and the more unique your experience is. So for example, the experience of oppression of a black woman is going to be different from the experience of oppression of a black man and a white woman. She exists at the intersection of two different oppressed identities. And at one level, we want to say that there's some truth to that. Uh, Your experience of the world will be different to a degree if you're a man or a woman or if you have darker skin or lighter skin. There's an element of truth to this. 
we don't dispute that. The problem is that this relatively non-controversial observation has been inflated. Uh, and intersectionality says that your race, for instance, so deeply, your skin color, so deeply shapes your experience of the world and causes you to experience oppression to such a degree that it is now a crucial component of your identity. Your race is who you are at a fundamental level. So Kimberly Crenshaw uh, observes, we can all recognize the distinction between the claims, I am black, and the claim, I am a person who happens to be black. You see the difference between those two statements? I am a person who happens to be black is emphasizing their humanity first and their blackness second. First and foremost, I'm a person. Crenshaw wants to reverse this. She wants to say, no, no, no. First and foremost, I'm black. My blackness has so defined my experience and it's such an integral part of who I am that that is fundamentally who I am. And intersectionality emphasizes the things that separate us rather than the things that unite us uh, as human beings. It erects impenetrable walls between different social groups and says everybody in this group is radically, essentially different from people in that group. A few years ago, I taught at an institution that had a campaign uh, where they put posters all over the campus and the posters would say something like, I am not a tranny or I am not a lesbian, I'm a human being. I'm not a tranny, I'm a human being, I'm a lesbian, I'm a human being. Uh, well, that's no longer okay to say. Uh, what you want to say now, according to theory, is no, I am uh, a lesbian, I am a tranny, I am uh, black. That is my fundamental identity. And again, you can see if, if you think that way, if you view yourself first and foremost in terms of what separates you from other people, it's going to be very difficult to build bridges and establish relationships with other people in other groups. So essentially, intersectionality emphasizes superficial differences and downplays our shared human nature. At the same time, it denies our individuality and it teaches us to view people not fundamentally as individuals, but as people of certain groups, representatives of certain groups. Um, Nancy Piercy observes, individuals are little more than mouthpieces for communities based on race, class, gender, ethnicity, and sexual identity. You see not just an individual with individual likes and dislikes, but a representative of a class. Ironically, colorblindness, which up until recently as a society we tend to view as a good thing. You don't look, when you look at a person, you don't see color, you see a person. Colorblindness is viewed as racist. Robin DiAngelo notes, recognize that colorblindness hides rather than addresses social injustices. So by not seeing color, you're actually missing out on the injustice that this person's experiencing, and it's a bad thing. James Lindsay writes, we hear that not seeing people in terms of their race, being colorblind is in fact racist and an attempt to ignore the pervasive racism that dominates society and perpetuates white privilege. I was watching an episode of The Office recently, which, is not, which was made not that long ago, and in one of the episodes, one of the characters says to one of the other characters, hey, good job for not seeing race. Okay, colorblindness was being celebrated as a good thing. According to what even MLK, Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Until recently, this was sort of the perspective. Now, critical race theory says, no, 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 we need to view 
uh, individuals fundamentally is defined by the race group they're a part of. We need to see color when we look at them. And the idea is to solve racism by doing this, but of course I think you can readily see how this might exaggerate and make the problem worse. There are two problems here. There are several, but there are two significant ones. First of all, it, it wrongly erases individuality or de-emphasizes it by, place, by giving too much emphasis to these social groups that they belong to. But arguably, a deep and lifelong passion for the books of C.S. Lewis, for example, is a much more important indicator of who a person is than their skin color, right? Uh, my point here is that there are all kinds of things that define us as individuals that are arguably much more important than skin color. Uh, intersectionality runs roughshod over these distinctions. It tries to say, basically, you know, there's one black perspective, there's one gay perspective. In fact, among these groups, there's significant diversity. What does CRT do with that diversity, by the way? What, 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 what do they do with a guy like Vodi Bakum, who's a black man, but rejects CRT? Well, they would say, oh, he's just imbibing white dominance. It needs to be cured of his misconception. So it teaches us to not judge individuals, but look at them through social groups, which, frankly, is unbiblical. The Bible tells us to look at individuals fundamentally, not the groups they belong to. Leviticus 19.15 you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you, you shall judge your neighbor. What is that saying? You're not going to look at their social group, rich or poor. You're going to judge them by the content of their character, by their conduct. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The whole point is you don't judge people fundamentally by their economic status, by these social categories. You deal with them as individuals made in the image of God. Second problem with intersectionality and I think this is the fundamental one, is it destroys the possibility of common ground between different groups of people. It reduces society to tribalism. You have identity politics where, politics where you have different groups clamoring for power over one another because we have no shared human nature that allows us to connect. We are essentially and fundamentally different. The walls are too high and there is no basis, there's no shared experience, there's no basis for reconciliation. Uh, there's a good example of this. In 2015, there's an infamous YouTube video of a Yale professor named Nicholas Christakis. Uh, and he's surrounded by some students, and there's a fairly heated exchange between Christakis and his students. Um, David Allen, Scott David Allen, in his book, sums up this interaction in this way. You may have seen the video. At one point in the exchange, Christakis says to his interlocutors, so I have a vision of us as people, as human beings, that actually privileges our common humanity, that is interested not in what is different among us, but what is the same. In response, a black student gets in his face and says, look me right in the eyes, look at me. Your experience will never connect to mine. Now, this is the fruit of inter intersectionality. The walls between us are so great, and our experiences are so different, that there is no point of contact. We are, we are living in fundamentally different worlds. 
uh, and there is no basis for unity, no basis for reconciliation. The result is the destruction of relationships, the fragmentation of society. Third tenet of critical race theory, final one, and I'll be brief here. Whites are inescapably racist because of their privilege. Whites are inescapably racist because of their privilege. So the idea here is that society has been arranged to benefit white people. And whether they intend to be racist or not, they are objectively racist because they're benefiting from the unequal treatment of blacks. It doesn't matter what your intent is. If you're white, you are a racist because of the arrangement of society. UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs notes, CRT identifies that, identifies that these power structures are based on white privilege and white supremacy, which perpetuates the marginalization of people of color. Again, Robin DiAngelo, uh, most discrimination is unconscious and takes place whether we intend to discriminate or not, despite genuinely held beliefs in fairness and equality. Uh, all white people benefit from racism regardless of intentions. Intentions are irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you actually think. You, you might have friends who are very different from you, uh, different social categories. You might be a very kind person. All of that doesn't matter. You are objectively, because of your skin color, racist and benefiting from the unequal arrangement of society. What is the solution according to theory for all this? Owen Strand sums it up this way. You must undertake a never-ending litany of works that work against your fundamentally racist nature. You cannot overcome such a condition, but like an alcoholic, you can manage it. If you're white, for example, you can and should try to be less white every day you live. The first step is recognizing you're a racist, confessing that constantly, and while you'll never stop being a racist, you should work hard at being less of a racist. Uh, there is penance, guilt, works with no grace and no forgiveness. And so we can say that at this point specifically, CRT is anti-gospel. Here is a sin that Christ cannot wipe away, that the power of the cross cannot drive out of your life. It is deeply rooted, and you can't help being a racist. You should just acknowledge it, feel bad constantly, and do what you can to be less white. Again, we rejoice in the fact that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has taken away not just some of our sins, but all of them. Through his shed blood and resurrection, we are presented before God without spot or blemish or moral taint. Jesus wipes away all sin and enables us to overcome all sin. There isn't one that we can't finally overcome through the power of the gospel. And we should note, secondly, that this is contrary to Scripture also because Scripture says we are guilty because we have violated God's moral law. We have done what he has told us not to do, and therefore we are guilty, not because of our, we're not guilty because of our skin color or because of our social position. This is an unbiblical definition of guilt. No one is guilty because they have certain skin pigmentation or because of the social position they were born into. That is plainly contrary to scripture. So CRT sees a real problem, racism, and provides a singularly unhelpful and unbiblical way to solve it, a method of solving it that arguably makes it far worse. In attempting to bring justice, it creates lots of injustice. But we need to recognize that the church from its earliest days has had a long and significant experience with bringing people from different 
hostile groups together. We need to recognize that in the early church, we can read about this all over the place in the New Testament, there was a radical divide between Jews and Gentiles. Chuck read at the beginning of the service, there was the dividing wall of hostility that separated them from one another. And these groups, Jews and Gentiles, had to learn how to live together as one people. How did they do this? How do they overcome this massive division that is arguably even greater than any of the divisions we face today? Well, there's a really interesting moment in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians where he talks about rebuking the apostle Peter. And what happened is that Peter, the apostle, was eating with Gentiles, happy to fellowship with them, until more, a more pious, religiously conservative Jewish group showed up from James. And when they showed up, Peter withdrew from table fellowship with the Gentiles, and he started eating with just the Jews. And so Paul rebukes Peter as acting in a way that's contrary to the gospel. Now, why was it contrary to the gospel? Think about what Peter was saying through his actions. It's not enough for you to believe in Jesus for us to eat together. You need to believe in Jesus and you need to be a Jew. Adhere to the same dietary codes. And Paul was saying that is a rejection of the gospel. If these people are in Christ, then all divisions have been overcome. It doesn't matter if they're Jew and Gentile, we eat together because we together are the people of God. We are one family. The solution to the divisions that existed among Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, was to underscore the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. As Paul writes, Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, yes, we come from different backgrounds, there are Jews and Greeks, there are wealthy, there are poor, there are better educated, less educated, different cultures, different languages, but all of these things are nothing compared to the fundamental fact that we are in Christ. We together were once dead in our sins and trespasses, and we have been washed and cleansed and are now sons and daughters of the living God. How can anything compare with that identity? When you recognize that the person looking you in the face is a son and daughter of God just like you, all of these superficial differences vanish in the air. You recognize your fundamental unity as the people of God in Jesus Christ. At CBC, if we want to live according to the unity of the gospel, we have to recognize that the basis for our fellowship and unity is not shared culture or language or education or race or anything like that. The basis for our unity is the work of Jesus Christ. We have been washed. We have been made a family. We are sons and daughters of God. We are, as Paul puts it, saints. Those who were once uh, defiled but have been washed and have now been claimed by God, that is who we are, and that is how we view one another. And when that happens, we're able to view the differences that exist among us um, in their proper light. The differences are fine. They're good. God didn't make us all the same. Uh, but these differences don't fundamentally define us. Jesus does. So there is an answer to these divisions among men, and the answer uh, in Scripture is finally Jesus Christ. His shed blood overcomes the dividing wall of hostility between different people groups and makes us one people, united to God and united to one another. And that's how we should pursue unity, by recognizing in the first instance 
our common human nature with all people, and also what we have in common with our brothers and sisters. We have been united to God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word which guides us in this often confusing, morally ambiguous world. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would be not taken captive by the ideologies of this world, but that we would be shaped in our thinking and living by your word. Grant that it would be so, Lord.